Thank you for downloading the Wings Museum podcast. In this edition, we talk about the importance of remembrance in the curation of the museum and hear about the origins of some of the larger exhibits. My name's Daniel Hunt. I'm one of the curators of the Wings Museum here at Balkan. So, Dan, how would you describe the Wings Museum? What, what, what is its purpose? Its purpose is mainly remembrance, to recognise what sort of past generations have done for the sort of world that we live in today and the, the freedom that we've got today. Although there are still obviously conflicts going on, and I think there probably always will be, regrettably, but the museum is to remind especially the younger generations, that you know, it all had a price. And certainly, I mean, we're standing here between two wrecks, is that a polite word for them? Two wrecks of planes from different parts of the world? No, I think you can say it's a, a fairly fair... <laughs> They're sort not of going to Yes, this is a fair <laughs> description of what they are, but a lot of what's in the museum is quite wreck-like, and the reason is, is because it's been through a world war. All of these exhibits have actually played an active part in World War Two, so... You know, obviously, they bear the scars from that. Plus, they've also had to survive for the next sort of 70 years before recovery. So is the recovery of these things where some of this interest has come from? Yeah, I think probably it started for me and my brother. My brother's also a co-curator of the museum. Was that as children, I was probably about six, and my brother would have been about ten. We were walking an old airfield in East Anglia in Norfolk, and if I think it was Flixton Airfield, from if my memory serves me correct. All right, yes. But we're walking around the perimeter, and my dad just saw a gun sight sticking out of the ploughed field on the edge, and As he picked do. it up yeah. and he showed it to us. And I, I think my brother was at the age where he was building airfix models and sort of had a general interest anyway, because I think you are born to some degree with an interest in it. And then as kids, we went off looking for other bits. And of course, in the 19, sort of, it was very early 80s, we were coming out with all sorts of bits and bobs, panels from B-24 Liberators that had sort of shrapnel holes through them. And they just literally discarded the panel into the woods. And then it was some years later, actually, because we didn't realise at the time. But on reflection, when we looked at these parts, we actually found that the aircraft numbers were stenciled on the back of the panel. So we were oh. actually able to some years later, uncover the stories that were behind them. And are all those bits that you found back then in here somewhere? They are, yeah. We've actually got a display set up in the bomber section, which contains all the, all the sort of major finds that we found on the airfields. And it actually also includes the original gun site as well that started wow. it all. So even after what must be nearly probably 40-odd uh-huh. years, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, there for people to see. So... Whether my dad actually regrets ever finding it or not, I, I don't know. But wish he, wished he walked past. <laughs> yeah, I think probably probably the, the moral there is to be careful what you show your kids. <laughs> On the other hand, it's good that it has fired this interest. Yeah, yeah, it certainly has. It's quite nice that it's sort of led to to other people that, you know, obviously we receive a lot of help here, certainly when it comes to staffing, restoration. There's just so much to do with a museum like this and the possibilities are endless as well. You know, we need as much help as we can get. You do have quite a few nice volunteers that we'll be speaking to about what they get up to here. But just briefly, as I say, we're standing between two planes. What what are these two? Um, On my left is uh, a Bell P-63 King Cobra, and it was made in America as a long-range fighter. It had a massive 
cannon that fired through the, the, the propeller through the nose and that was a 37 millimeter cannon so it had a, an awesome sort of firepower but no matter how much they tried they did struggle with the range and they actually lost the contract in the end to the mustang which had a much further range because at that time the american u.s army air force were trying to find an escort that could take the bombers to berlin and back they did introduce under wing tanks but it still lacked the range but at that time they then had the russians asking them for equipment to you know to keep fighting hitler on the eastern front mm. so it was recognized that the p63 would suit that theater of war operations quite well so they actually diverted pretty much all of them to russia on a lend lease which technically means that the russians are supposed to pay for them <laughs> after the war yes but there's there is a but you know i haven't gone into the legalities of it but i believe there was a clause in there that if something was destroyed in action it didn't have to be paid for so of course the russians at the end of the war basically went around hacking them all up butchering them so that they argued that you know they didn't need paying for but i think previously to that what's interesting about the king cobra is that even after 1945 it had a brief action of about six weeks against the japanese just after the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima and uh -huh. then later Nagasaki, mm. the Russians invaded some quite remote islands in the Kuril Islands to coincide with that attack. So it opened up yet another front that the Japanese had to defend. So you might say it was a straw that broke the camel's back, but the Russians did invade these islands and evidence shows that actually even when the Japanese signed the official surrender document, that didn't stop the battles that were going on in these remote parts and they carried on because right. obviously the Russians were advancing and so they, they carried on until they were forced to stop when the attention caught up with them. Yeah, I mean th these are stories that we don't generally hear about. Over here we think VE Day and that's it really, yeah, possibly uh, even forgetting a lot of other things in Japan. Yeah, we got VJ Day which obviously everybody thinks then that the war was over but certainly unofficially the actions are known to have carried on um, mm. in these islands and of course the, the Russians have maintained the territory that they took they still own them today there and was I an think, ulterior motive do you think well I'm sure yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they are rich in sort of uh, natural minerals and various you know they're useful and strategically I think they're quite useful yeah but the, the service of the P-63 carried on even after the war the Americans were then quite concerned that, well, okay, you know, what was what was going on in Berlin? The Russians were actually quite close to their border in Alaska. So they actually sent a flight of uh, reconnaissance aircraft to photograph the Russian positions. And it is reported in the archives that they were intercepted by a flight of what was called Franks then, which was the NATO code name for their own aircraft, which was the P-63 King Cobra. And the Russians carried on using them until about sort of 1950 oh. uh, so the first reconnaissance flight from the americans was fended off by these and what with its massive cannon i'm not really surprised that they actually did actually turn back but that kind of kicked off the sort of beginning part of the cold war really and the other plane to our right here and on the right is a uh, nakajima b5 n2 and it had the allied code name of a kate and it's basically a Japanese torpedo bomber with three crew. It had a pilot, a gunner, um, stroke bomber, and a, and a rear gunner. 
and this one served quite early on in the war it's actually got um data plates from it that uh, date back to 1941 um so it's seen an awful lot of action, but it ended up in the Kuriel Islands in 1945, where it force landed on a beach, which is the diorama that we represent it here today, and then spent the next 70 odd years just sat there. Some of the sections were removed, you know, some of the lighter sections, like the rear tail section and the outer wings, were removed for scrap, but the main centre section sat there. And up until, well, probably two years ago, it was the only one in the world. There has since been another one turn up, which Mm. is now at the Pearl Harbour Museum, but uh, this is probably certainly a a rare survivor. There's a lot of uh, sort of repair patches and bullet holes all over it, so, you know, we we can't prove it, but who knows, it might well have been at Pearl Harbour. So, hearing these stories, how do they come to be here? How do you find these things on the other side of the world? Around the sort of early noughties, we were introduced by someone to the Russians, I suppose you might say that there's a chain of people who are on the ground and those that can get them out of the country, that's the next big challenge. It's not just finding them, but it's actually getting the permissions from the Ministry of Culture to actually export them. That can prove to be very difficult, but mm. we... Um, you presumably just have to persuade them it's yeah. in the greater good, or yeah, do you have to I wave a checkbook? One of the imports actually was held up at docks for about six months and I think uh, what actually got the the stamp on the export papers was that we actually purchased um, an office leather swivel chair for them <laughs> right. and miraculously <laughs> the stamps were put on the papers and they they were you know they were on their way Happy, um, but uh, but now it's a little bit different in Russia that you know in, in those days they looked upon it as scrap really but now probably we got eBay to thanks for that. You know, <laughs> that they now see it as a value, and of course, sort of by the time you take in any sort of import costs, it kind of ends up being a little bit unsustainable, really, to import anything these days. I think it's something like um, I've forgotten the exact figure, but I think it was something like 18 aircraft wrecks that we imported. There were six P63 King Cobras. There was a Mitchell, a Kate, the B5N2 Kate, several Kai 43 Oscars. Um, some Hurricanes, two A20 Bostons, and it did. You know, to be fair, it all arrived. Some of it suffered a little bit of damage in transit, but I mean, they're just you know, it's very difficult to control that really because it's such a remote location. But uh, we did actually receive what we set out. I'm sure you're, you're glad of. that you got them out when you did. Yes, absolutely, because I think it gives the museum a little bit of a unique point of interest, really, because people can come here. And they can learn about other theatres of war, not just the Battle of Britain and not just D-Day and the Allied invasion, but also other theatres of war. And I think the mu- that sort of is what the museum's about, is about remembering things that might be forgotten. And what we plan to do in the future is to focus on the Burma campaign. All right. Um, Oft forgotten. Sadly. Well, yeah, and I think really what planted that seed in my mind was that... Um, some years ago I was at the War and Peace show down in Detlin of Paddockwood mm-hmm. and there was a, a veteran that was being wheeled out by his son and he was holding a samurai sword right. and he was looking to sell this and I just asked him, you know, obviously I said, you know, what's that? And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a veteran. And I said, oh, where, where did you serve? And he said, in Burma, I was part of the Forgotten Army and for him to see himself like that 
that kind of, I just thought how sad that was really. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, and I think people don't really know what went on out there. And I have to, I have to confess that I'm fairly limited in my knowledge on what went on out there. So I think that that's what museums should focus on is, is not just the things that people already know about, but the things that are perhaps are already slipping into the back of people's minds, you know, and, and are at risk of being forgotten. You're quite keen for people to donate personal items that also tell a story. Why is that so important, do you think? I think it's important because, you know, unfortunately in this day and age where um, you've got eBay, you've got people that are in this that are looking to, to sell things to make money, we always have to question the provenance because we're representing the memories of these servicemen and these conflicts. We have to ensure that, that it's correct so really, when something comes into the museum that is from somebody's granddad or their father or something like that, it's, it's a question we don't have to ask. We know it's right. Yeah, we yeah, know it's real. The person has walked in with the item yeah. and, yes. I mean, I've come across it before. that I did actually buy a group um, to a Dakota pilot who served on D-Day. These items, a lot of them were named. A lot of them were, you know, you, you knew they were correct, but the group had been added to by the dealer so when I started to research it there are actually medals that are included in the group that he was never awarded right yes. and <laughs> as I do with these things if I feel that I can research it further and I can clarify that it's correct then I often take a bit of a punt a bit of a gamble doesn't always pay off but on this occasion I actually traced the family so they were actually able to recognize things from when you know obviously they had the clearance occurred mm. and they could say that's right that was never there that's nothing to do with it and then the thing that shocked me was that the photograph that said lieutenant clary on the back he they said that's not our father <laughs> right so <laughs> i even had to disregard the photo but yeah. they were able to correct it correct history if you like so basically the other bits and bobs they they weren't really of interest to us so they were just sold on to recover some of the costs and they were sold on as they are, you know, just blank medals with, mm. with, no, with no history or no names associated to them. But the items that we confirmed are actually on display just in front of the jump door of the Dakota here. And that's quite satisfying when you can correct these things. But it, yeah. it does also make you question everything. <laughs> and that's why it's important mm. for donations direct from people because yeah. there isn't money involved. So therefore, there's no reason... To make up any stories you know and it's presumably just quite nice for the family to know that their family member is being remembered absolutely yeah i mean and they often come back and they're quite proud i think that they know that um they're being remembered especially if uh, you know there's a lot of uh, items in here that are associated to uh, casualties their kind of display with their medals or or whatever it might be is a kind of memorial to them you know and we have the public passing through and every time that story is read and that person's name is read and often their age is appreciated, they're being remembered. That is what I think makes the museum, what we hear a lot from the public, is it's the, the personal stories. It's not just a collection of metal and tools. You know, it all, it all has a story to tell. Thank you for listening to the Wings Museum podcast. To find out more or to get in touch visit wingsmuseum.co.uk.